Hello and welcome to Sapchat. I'm your host, Jaron Main. Now, joining me on this episode today is Jamie Nealon. Jamie is the Director of Professional Services and also Global Head of Transformational Services at EpiUse Labs. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jaron. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, we are recording this uh, the second day, actually, of the uh, SAP User Annual Conference at the ICC in Birmingham. This will probably go out mid-December time, I guess. Um, How's the conference been for you? Good. Yeah, it's the first one that's felt almost normal since yeah. the years of the pandemic when we didn't really do conferences and had to do everything via virtual call. I don't know if you did those, but I did a couple of virtual conferences with chat rooms you try and walk into. Yeah. It was abysmal, unfortunately. <laughs> I'd love to say that there's a CO2 benefit to doing conferences that way, but you have to, you have to do them in person. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it's felt really good this year. It's it much more engagement than last year. Yeah, I think last year was difficult. We had that Omicron scared and we just before... Yes. And then we had a lot of um, poor weather. Yes, very poor weather. And I think that affected attendance. But it's good to have everyone back. Now, Jamie, um, in your role, and we were talking about this just a bit earlier before we started recording, um, there's been a lot of theme in the, the keynotes yesterday about talent, lack of talent, and how do we bring talent on. And I know you've got some really strong views about your journey into the role that you're doing today and, and how that kind of conflicts sometimes. Yes, you never quite know where you're going to go, do you? I studied computer science. Mm. Uh, there was no SAP on the course, you can imagine. Uh, yeah. In the 90s, I didn't know what it was. Um, I wanted to go and work in CERN in Switzerland was my dream. Um, <laughs> but my university had ties with AstraZeneca. And right. uh, I got a job there, which you were meant to take. It was a good company, good yeah. ties to university, good yeah. reputation internally. And I got into a SAP project there. And you know, what's this SAP stuff? And it was quite interesting. It was an R2 to R3 project uh, at the time. <laughs> so converting stuff and working on the mainframe terminals, then going to the GUI screens. And I went went down that path into uh, some application development, some basis kind of work. So I still had a programming, programming mm. SAP, programming shell scripts. Uh, I really liked that. But I've moved into a management role over the years. Mm. Um, originally doing things like implementations and starting to lead a team that was doing the technical side of work. Right. But I've kind of fallen into a role that's, that's wonderful. It's very business focused. You know, I'm looking at P&L and the cost of employing people. Yeah. And how that works with delivering services to clients. Um, and that comes with a certain kind of vertigo at first of, oh, I'm not I'm not doing this stuff on the keyboard anymore with yeah. SAP. I know. What actual value do I have? You yeah. Have to kind of work out how you're bringing value to the business if you're not doing the work day to day with the client. And then you sort of worry about um, making sure you keep your skills. Because yeah. I'm fascinated by how SAP works from the from the base technology there, the infrastructure up to the application. Um, but there's a vast amount of stuff to learn about SAP. Yeah. So how you keep in touch with everything, I found is actually through primarily conversation, mm. pure education and conversation, mm. and keeping in touch with your team as much as you can. But that's a hard path. So yeah, it, I've tried it is. to... Tried to Bring other as we've gone trying to bring other people into that role. Yeah, you have to see: Are you really ready? Is this something you're sure you want for yourself? Some yeah. people know themselves and say, "No, I want to keep working like as an engineer, as yep. a principal engineer, maybe if they want to take that direction." Um, and others take that uh, with trepidation, that step into maybe more of a business type of position. Yeah, yeah. It, it is difficult. It is difficult, and it's something that I, I've struggled with because you naturally. Want to get down into the weeds it's like btp you know i've got a good 
understanding of what it is, how it can be applied. Um, but I want to get down into the weeds and do some courses. And I'm trying to say, is that really a good use of my time? Is that really what I'm here for? Exactly. I'm doing you know. exactly the same thing with BCP. Mm. Yeah. Yes, precisely. And yeah. you, um, I think, I think you've kind of maybe got to get your head around the fact that you're being paid and the value is in something else. And maybe it's more about how, how clients can apply the value. Of, yes. For example, BTP, rather than how do they deploy it? I don't know. I think there's some value as well in if you can develop a skill set around talking to the business about yeah. how they're using IT and the SAP, and you've got some technical history, it gives you a certain kind of profile that's different to other people who also have their strengths, but you realize there's some value in that, be able to, to work as an interpreter almost between yeah. one company and another. Yeah. Um, and you can see how certain projects fail and maybe take the experience of why mm. and try to structure a business in a way that helps to prevent that. I, I spend a lot of my time doing that, those kind of things these days. Um, but what I was mentioning earlier, that the really interesting part I thought that linked to the UKI SUG presentations is the skills gap yeah. mentioned. It's a lot of that. I think yeah. um, one of the clients presented about their construction industry and how there's a skills gap there as well for them. Mm. And I'm always wondering, you know, the higher population of the planet, what, what are we doing wrong that there's such a big skills gap everywhere? Yeah, I know. Um, but bringing new graduates in, was, we started a graduate program. Mm. It's a little bit like a big brother house. So it was, it was my little brainchild with a guy who uses a contractor externally. Yeah. It's because we work across different European geographies and the business we do is quite specialised, we thought we'll bring graduates in from different parts of Europe mm. um, who speak the language, who are local to their country, who already have sort of a home there that might want to go back there and yeah. stay there. Yeah. We'll bring them into Manchester in the UK, that's where we're mm -hmm. based, and put them up in house. Yeah. A bit like Big Brother. Yeah. I thought this could go wrong, but it's <laughs> yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and try and yeah. get a community going and then teach them about SAP and technology and what the community's like for this industry. Yeah. Um, in a kind of old antiquated format in a way, but yeah. in person. Yeah. In an office. And they've actually become an anchor for us because we're trying to work out what the right balance is for getting employees to come to the office, but giving them the flexibility that people want these days. Yeah. And where do you draw the line for someone that lives near the office or far away from the yeah. office? What's the rule? Yeah. Is there a rule? Um, and actually having the graduates there is a reason for people to come in. So we ask them for the first year to be in the office yeah. with some flexibility. And they become a reason. People can want to teach them about what they know. Yeah. And so that's been really interesting. And actually, I wondered if new graduates would see SAP and, and wonder, is this what I want to be working with? Yeah. Um, but actually, they find it quite interesting. We try and teach them the business context of yeah. this is what people use it for. And actually, then it's quite interesting. Yeah. Like councils, governments, defense agencies, UNESCO. I mean, uh, then it, if you get the context of how it's being used, yeah, uh, I think they realize that oh, this is actually, this is quite interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a desire for for people to gravitate towards shiny things and and look at the latest um, tech. But, you know, at the end of the day, the lesson I learned when I was younger was the fact that, you know, it doesn't matter how shiny the tech is, the business trying to make money. You know, where's the business case? Yes. And uh, and that's a really powerful question to, to go back to, to grads with. But it's really interesting that I was talking to a couple of people at the coffee bar yesterday we were just chatting over the, the the dynamic now about what it's like to be a graduate 
that had started with a new business during COVID, during lockdown, and the fact that for a lot of people, and there's a lot of discussion around um, yesterday on the uh, on live podcast we did about the skills gap and the fact that a lot of us were of a certain age. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what did that really mean then for graduates that were joining? I mean, we all know each other. We've got that community. It's really important to us. It's been very good to us. But actually, if you're starting out now, how do you get the airtime with more experienced people? How yes. do you get that, um, that, that, that balance right? You know, and if they do go to the office and the experienced people aren't going to the office, what is the point? Yes, exactly. And if you don't have time over a coffee uh, and the parts in between the meetings when you talk to people about, okay, how does that actually work? I heard what you said, but can you just explain that to me? Yeah. But you don't have that if you're just going from video call to another video call and then doing the washing in between or answering the door. You, you lose it completely. So I do wonder, and you get a very different profile. Some we find with the flexibility, some people just choose to come to the office a lot. Mm. Uh, I think they benefit more and some people don't. And I wonder if that's like diversity of character preference, if it's neurodiversity to some degree as well. Yeah. You don't want one type of person to lose out over the other. So managing that's become quite a minefield. Um, and at the same time, you have to use more a carrot, like make, make the office attractive. Yeah. Do you have a table tennis table or a really nice coffee machine? Yeah. Uh, what gets people into that office? And I've been speaking to, I mean, the organisation I work for, we've, we've uh, moved out of our London location into a new one. Um, and I know lots of people in the network, uh, you know, going through a similar process. But there's this kind of um, this kind of position that organisations got themselves in. The, the, the new offices tend to be purpose as somewhere between a cross between home and an office. Yes, you know, it's that that barrier. You know, it, it used to be. 20, 30 years ago, you go into an office, it was very stiff and starchy. Yes. You know, it's very formal. We all wore ties, the blokes, you know. Um, there was dress code for women, uh, you know, and it was all, everything was really prescribed. Now there's kind of that barrier's gone and you're kind of seeing, you know, um, offices close to kind of restaurants and bars and, you know. Yeah, it's that like a living room in one part of the yeah, office. Yeah. Then, although actually I quite like that for the certain types of work. If you've got to read something and digest it yeah. in, in today's world of distractions everywhere. Yeah. I used to like, a, maybe it's partly my age, but I like to print something out yeah. and then get away from the screen for a few minutes and yeah. read it with a pen and mark it up. And I yeah. find that way I can digest it. Yeah. That's something that the new modern offices have. There'd be a comfy chair near a window. Yeah. You can shift from one space to the other. Coffee area. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I do like that part of it. Yeah, no, and, and uh, so I think I think that's going to be interesting, but it's it's good. So in terms of your grad program, yeah, and that, that's going well, that's yes. bringing you those individuals. How do you manage um, attrition? Because one thing that I think has happened is that the, the loyalty to an organisation isn't what it was. I mean, you know, let's be honest, when we joined, I think you kind of intimated, you know, you went to university – it was a good business, AstraZeneca. Yeah. You know, we all look for big brands. We all look for responsible. I went to work for NatWest, a bank, you know, at yeah. the time before they became like estate agents. They were very highly regarded, you know, job for life kind of thing. But, you know, how do, how do you cope with that? Yeah, I think it's just natural, actually, that people expect to move jobs more often than they used to. Mm. There's a lot more, certainly looking to hire people, you find there's a lot more contracts, I think, than permanent staff. Mm. And I think that's become quite a theme, especially in certain countries. And for the graduates, we managed to retain quite a few. Uh, and that's part of the idea is 
bring them together and when they move out to probably back towards the countries they've come from mm. there's a bond between people and that sort of keeps it's this community mm. community keeps people together more often i think than than salary or other things yeah it's quite often the people if they enjoy the way the company's run mm. the people they work with uh, that keeps i think a company together uh, obviously you need compensation and benefits to be right as well but it's I, not it's very far from being the only thing i, I think do. i spoke to someone recently actually that worked for won't, won't name the company uh, but they completely got rid of all working from the office. Mm. Um, and the chap I was talking to, he said, well, and I left and HR tried to keep me. And I said, well, what I really want is to be able to not have to work from home every day of the week and have flexibility. And they said, well, sorry, that's the one thing we can't do for you. So wow. I'm off to go and work for this uh, this other company then in that case. So it's if you look on a balance sheet, it's, an office can look like a, yeah. a bad spend. You could even argue it it's money taken away from compensating your employees or investing in other things. But... Mm. I think it's incredibly important. And I have to say, um, I still can't quite replace a whiteboard. And no. a few people huddled around it. Now, that might be showing my age. I don't know. But I, I, you know, you think about the number, pre-COVID, the number of conversations that you'd have and somebody would jump up with a, a whiteboard marker and scribble things down. And um, the photos I've taken of whiteboards. Yes, one of, one of my big pushes, actually, in the office we've got was to um, install a white wall. Right. So we have one big wall in the middle of the office, and you can get like a plastic strip, like a big sheet that you roll you, out onto. You showed me when I visited. Yes, right. yes yeah. there you go. And so, I, and so I had a bit of a, a contretemps with the other people about the office at some points about this, because it was a little bit expensive. Yeah. And we were working on what to spend money on. I said, no, we've got, we've got to have that, because if you're architecting something, if you're understanding or explaining something, yeah. I think for a lot of people me especially um, visual explanation is very important yeah if you talk to an architect there's always drawings oh, yeah and you can't you can't describe things just with words and excel sheets and uh, emails you've got to draw something up and quite often you find someone saying oh wait a minute is is that how that works yeah yeah um, yeah and in data i work a lot in data and sap mm-hmm. which is, it's a fascinating area we'll come on to that in a moment <laughs> trying to understand it it's yeah almost a job in its itself there's so much of it but you've got to dig into things visually, I think. And it hasn't escaped my attention that pretty much every uh, person working in IT is carrying around a notebook and a pen pretty much all the time because we're always scribbling, Absolutely. not just notes, but it's just, uh, I, I, just before this podcast, talking to a colleague, I was trying to explain a concept and, you know, before I know, I'm kind of getting, 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 opening a page and scribbling down something and trying to use it to explain it. I don't know whether it's, it's something we learn um, in IT or something, we're all naturally gravitate. I don't know. Be interesting. I think it helps to entrench learning and memory mm. as well. I think yeah. by going through different mediums, you help to retain the knowledge. I find yeah. much better for me anyway, yeah. personally, if I yeah. write as well as reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite often, that's a reason for me to blog. Is a selfish reason. That yeah. I want to remember this. Yeah. And actually, if I write a blog about it, I find that actually I'll remember what I wrote about far better than other things I've learned. It's interesting. I, I, I really love blogging, but uh, when I blog, I do it because it forces me to try to explain a complex, uh, often a complex uh, issue or subject and try to simplify it. Yes. So I think, you know, because I'm conscious that I am trying to, in my job, speak to customers and clients and uh, explain, you know, really, you know, why, why would I, why would I want to do this, and uh, and why, why is that important? And sometimes being able to sit down and, and clarify my thoughts forces me, yes. uh, without the pressure of speaking to somebody directly, to kind of put that into a 
It's sort of explain it to yourself as well as yeah. everybody else at that yeah. point. And it Absolutely. Can, it can refine your thinking. Yes, it's a good way to go about it, I think. We actually, we've tried to find ways, looking at ESG, another topic at UKIS are very much at mm. forefront was ESG. Yeah. Um, I think that's on a lot of people's minds. And if you work for a consultancy firm, you'll be you know, aware of the amount of travel and CO2 you yep. use in your job. Mm. We've tested all sorts of technologies during the lockdown. We've been using uh, Oculus headsets, mm-hmm. VR meetings. There's an app called Spatial. Right. Who's interested in that, which give you pre-made offices you can sit in in different formats. You can sit around a table. Right. You can sit in an auditorium. Yep. You can present video and screens and whiteboards. Oh, wow. Um, you, if you, it's obviously it's made for games, so you've got handsets, but actually you can recognize your hands, so you can hold and draw things wow. in space. And we've tried doing this to see if there's effective use of it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. We've, we've even built our own of office in VR. It's not quite got to the point, I think, where it's, comfortably replacing another meeting but there are benefits because you sometimes you stand up and move around so i mean i'm sure if, if anyone's listening that this is worse than it which most of the people are sure yeah probably 50 percent plus of a back problem yeah I, I certainly do yeah yeah um so actually not sitting down if you stand up and move around during a meeting you find it quite energizing wow even affects your thought patterns so there's definitely something in maybe augmented reality yeah virtual reality it gives you a different way to interact with people and it's quite focused too. So if you ever worked at home and there's something else going on yeah. in your side vision that puts yeah. you off, your parents, uh, your wife, your children, um, something like VR wraps around your vision and completely blocks out. So it gives you total okay. focus as well. There's downsides, health and safety, your, your neck. Yeah, your yeah, yeah. There's potential problems there. But um, you know, looking into that, really to try and replace the whiteboarding. Yeah, yeah. Somehow virtually... I think there's something there that's not quite ready. But if you can imagine, it's if you've close. done the trips where you you know, you know fly across the Atlantic, yep. you have a meeting, maybe if it's a journey, you might go to Asia as well, yep. and you get back exhausted after 10 days, yep. you think, how much did that cost? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, for the amount of time that I was actually... For the amount of time you were there. Yeah, yeah completely, completely. Now, I'm going to be slightly selfish now because I know uh, y- you are heavily focused in transformations and data is a huge part of that and i know we've chatted before about about the notion of you know our customers actually spending more money now on data than they are the application and that's a wild kind of assertion to make i'm not sure it's an assertion as such but it's a kind of it's an interesting debate i know we were having one day over a bit yeah what what you know there's a big focus at the icc uh, around preparation and, you know, there's various stats pushed out yesterday in the keynotes about, you know, actually customers now fully on the journey. Not 100%, but, you know, I think we're somewhere around 70% are actively on the journey. And what I'm seeing, a lot of customers getting their heads around, having a clean core uh, and trying to get on top of their data ahead of any migration. So what's your your take on that? What are you seeing? Yes, I mean, I, I've grown to focus on data more in my job um, and I've got a bit of a, uh, a general interest in it I did database design I did some DPA work early on in my career um, so I'm interested in that layer um, I think the idea of the clean core the code is, mm. is interesting I just think I understand what they're doing the BTP and moving customizations outside of the core but that's almost a technological solution they're not saying we won't have to customize SAP for the businesses because the wild variety of businesses that use SAP mm. You come across all sorts of fascinating, you know, usages yep. of it you never expected to see. Um, so there'll always be that customization. If you move it to BTP outside of the core, it maybe improves the maintenance of the 
core maybe makes that more cost effective for the business. You still have to maintain the customizations just in a different place. Yeah. Um, so I find the data particularly interesting because the data is something people haven't ever proactively managed in the past. So in my early career, there was no talk of proactively managing the data, really. Mm. You copy the system, you move the system around. Uh, but you didn't proactively manage data as such, other than maybe between applications and in an integration sense. Yep. Uh, and actually, the amount of data that's stored across a full SAP landscape from development, QA, test, maybe a project landscape as well, yep. it starts to be a, a lot. Yeah. Really a very vast amount of data. You're talking, mm. I've heard so many stats on this, but the most recent one, one of our product owners told me it's definitely about 65,000 tables in the ECC. He wasn't sure about S4HANA. Wow. But it's lots of questions there. Which, yeah. which modules are, am I actively using? What if I'm using ISU or something as well as the uh, standard? Yeah, right. Yeah. CRM, SRM, SCM. One of the uh, developers told me there's over 200,000 tables if you have all, if you had everything, BW, CRM, all these other systems. Jeez. It's, a, it's a vast sea of data, isn't it? And it all yep. connects together in different ways. So it's a hard challenge to proactively manage it. But I think two things have driven, well, two or three things have driven a much bigger focus on that which has become an area of interest for me personally and where I'm working, which is the, the in-memory shift to that kind of database technology mm. drives up the cost of keeping the primary database yep. mostly active in memory, mm. which has got great performance benefits, but you don't want data to be there, obviously, if you're not using it. And it comes with a huge cost. Time, yep. Huge cost. Um, and then there's the data privacy laws, mm. which are fascinating because I've talked to a few customers who genuinely never really thought about it in depth. Yeah, because you've got to run a business, make a profit, pay the staff in the company. Mm. You don't proactively manage the data unless you really need to. Yep. The laws started to say, well, actually, that's important. It has mm. value. It's people's personal data. You're looking after it for them. There's a risk to them if you don't look after it properly. Mm. And so I had quite a few meetings where they, you know, they're taking it very seriously, companies, mm. and they're looking internally and going, actually, this data's in a lot of places, an awful lot of places. How on earth do we go about proactively managing it? So yep. you've got to sort of take a completely different approach. And at the same time, the DNA of a lot of companies for a long time in this space was one of infrastructure. You know, heritage is infrastructure. You, you'd really buy into a vendor partly for CPUs, as you were mentioning CPUs before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how much local memory is there next to the next to the CPU versus the RAM in this machine? Let's get into that conversation. And it really was, <laughs> well, yeah, that was the road you were running on. But that's almost virtual, abstracted, virtualized. It's become just part of the infrastructure now. And you're looking much more above the infrastructure layer. People are looking at totally. virtualized environments, and then the focus on data can return a bit. They've got the time and the bandwidth to say, I'm not so worried about what exactly the platform is. Maybe they should be. But I, well, yeah, I mean, and we were, we were having a, on, the, on the walk over, over the bridge here, we were, we were talking about that very moment, which, which is an interesting concept. And I was speaking to some guys yesterday um, and, uh, and, and they, were, they were from Intel and they were just talking about the importance of understanding, you know, the, the technical specification. And that was the conversation we were having because I, I might be um, just unique, but I don't sense customers are having the same level of conversations about, you know, performance of chips that they were um, maybe 10 years ago when they were buying them um, in a data center and they were their own capital expenditure. And I might be wrong. I'm sure there are people 
that will ping me and say, Jaron, you're totally wrong. I spent my life doing this. But you know what I mean? It, it does. But you're right. Yes. It, that's gone away. The platform is, you know, will I go cloud and what flavor of cloud? But but then you're right. Actually, it's the data and just corralling the data and understanding where it sits, I guess, is a huge yes. challenge in itself before you can start to make some kind of strategy around that. Huge challenge. I mean, even just the, the technical data in an SAP system is often not proactively maintained. It can be, um, but it can be huge in terms of the volume you generate, and it can bog you down. So it's not the focus of a project. Most projects don't want their budget spent on cleaning up the, the technical data debt, if you like, that's yeah. been built up in the environment. But if they don't clean it up, they can hit loads of problems down the road that they, they don't foresee. But it's such a minefield. Nobody wants to really dig into the entire SAP data data layer and work out how to make that healthy or at least they didn't until data privacy laws came along and actually i found some people then go and look at data a bit more broadly Um, if we look at data minimization and you know the attack surface to external threat vectors uh, what does it mean in a risk sense if you have more data held than you need to hold in your environment Um, and what are the benefits of changing the paradigm and how you manage an IT landscape to include a data strategy. Yep. Which, but the problem with that for many is it means changing quite a lot of processes. If you say I'm going to change how we build non-production environments or how we're going to manage production, you have to really change a lot of processes that don't have data integrated into them today, which is a bit like the security conversation in testing. I was going to slow down testing if we integrate security checks early on. Yep. But if you start to look at a DevOps process, you know, the further you put the security testing left in that process, the more secure the application probably will be further down the line. I think it's the same with data. So if it's an S4 journey or a um, or BW, it must come to that as well because I'm fascinated by the lack of <laughs> BW being anywhere near the front page of these events right at the moment. Yeah. But how you manage data proactively environments it's an, it's an important question actually a few vendors have been saying it as well if you're starting the journey uh, you've got the customer vendor integration which i think most people already have looked at at least to yep. some degree i hope they have but they need to if they haven't in s call you if they haven't exactly call us if they haven't but there's far more to the data in an sap environment than that and i've, I've spoken to a couple of clients who have approached it with a good paradigm of taking the current production system and building an s landscape from that mm. as the source not replicating any dev and test environments, use change governance to move anything that's being developed up into that system, but just use production as the, the golden source for the new S4 landscape. But the problem with that is some of them have taken all the data too from production. And that's a lot. Yeah, and there's been a lot more focus. I mean, there the, the was in the keynotes um, references by SAP and actually by uh, Mark from, from Unipart around um, Signavio. And there's much more conversation I've had on the stand and the floor around processes, understanding your processes and how processes and data flow together and being really aware of that and how that works. So I think that's a a really interesting concept um, out of that. But, um, I mean, you've got a a load of tooling. It's like the James Bond of of tooling. So... um, and my, and my, our original CEO would say to me, it's, it's definitely not tooling, Jamie. It's software. There's Sorry. a difference. 
And I always have his voice in my head when people mention <laughs> tooling. He was a very stern South African man, so I oh, okay. springs up right. in my memory quite. So clearly. yes, so software. You have a you have an armory of, of of software that you deploy. How important is that? Very, yeah. We focus on, or I should say, we a very good R and D team. We've got are focused on building, really mapping, and this is mm. a very geeky uh, endeavor to have undertaken. But mapping the SAP data model really. And separating that from building functions in software. So they've really tried to tackle building the entire object model. How does a sales order link to an invoice in SAP? Yeah. What does, what's the relationship to a customer or a business partner behind that? What bill of materials were sold? What materials were linked to that bill of materials? You know, it's a long way to go down that chain potentially. Uh, but they've tried to map every object, every object, wow. every, in every type of ABAP system at least, and then build the integration points with every other object. Uh, it's really, it's a it's an impossible piece of work to complete, mm. um, but it's fascinating to look under the hood because you can go and understand there's a problem here. I think it's data related, but it's quite hard to hunt down that problem in SAP, even if you can debug app app and, and dive into systems. But if you can take a step away and look at how does that all hang together? What data is associated with a business partner really? Um, it makes it easier to execute on change to put every data that's in SAP back into an object context and a business object context. So you bring, and that's important actually, we try and teach people not to stay completely technical, to look at how's the business using SAP? Mm. What's the data that's being used in this function? What does that mean to the business? And I think that's quite engaging for a technical person too, to understand the real world impact of what they're doing can make the job role more fulfilling. So yeah, the, the software is focused on object modeling yeah. as being what underpins any function that's built, whether it's extracting data, building test environments, transforming in place. I'm conscious of time. I'm conscious that um, I'm running out of your precious time. As a parting gift, what, what would be your, your one piece of advice then to, to a customer that is embarking on a journey? Maybe uh, they've started to look at their, their S4HANA journey and then, you know, where, where, what do you think they, what's one piece of advice that you would give them at this stage? I think it would probably be to just include a data strategy in the assessment and road mapping phase mm. for S4HANA. To, we would rarely go to a client and for them to and have them be able to give us a map of all the systems they've got today. Mm. When that system was last built or refreshed, of yes. a very interesting question sometimes, oh, about 10 years ago. Um, and how big that system is, what kind of compute power it's using. Because yep. once you understand that landscape, and it might be a three-tier dev QA production, it might be 15 systems, yep. uh, all built for different projects, some, of, some turned off or not. You can understand a bit more about how they've been using the system. And sometimes that's completely missing from the planning for S4. Um, and it really affects the sizing, the whole landscape, the investment. And I think in some cases... Our sort of positioning piece, I suppose, I'll leave you with a, a paradigm. I've come up with this in some of my blogs, which is to take a lean, secure approach to SAP. I was trying to sum up all the different things we do with software. And lean, secure seemed to sum it up. So it's to look at lean data, dev, QA test, production. What have you got today? What do you actually need to run the business? Right. Because if there's less in each landscape, it's faster to maintain that landscape and less costly to buy the platform. And to make sure that's part of the design for S4 so that you look at 
sizing the landscape from day one with as efficient data footprint as possible. Move, move something else into archiving or maintain it beforehand, clean yep. it up beforehand. And if you can actually track what you're saving from that, you can offset even quite a big part of the cost of the project. Um, and my final addition to that would be a lot more people in the privacy side want to anonymize the data. I've had lots of conversations about that in the UK outside this time around. It's much harder when there's a lot of the data. So yeah. actually by, by proactively minimizing the data you need for testing for DevOps, it makes it easier to scramble it, to anonymize it, to maintain it so that people's data is protected. Um, and that takes a bit of time. It takes changing processes. When you start a new project, you want to be able to give it quickly and yep. to get the project running. So yeah, embed that, minimize data and anonymize it and steward it better. Well, Jamie, thank you for being so generous with your time. It's great Pleasure. to see you again uh, in the flesh. And uh, and thank you for, for coming along and thank you for giving your excellent advice to listeners today. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie.